Hear this word. When they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots to divide his clothing. And the people stood by watching, but the leaders scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Messiah of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged there kept deriding him and saying, Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed have been condemned justly. For we are getting what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. The word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts find acceptance in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I mentioned it as we were reading the scripture, but I want to say it again. Today it's really important that we bear in mind the full story of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation because there is a trajectory to Scripture that it's important that we keep in mind even as we remember all of the little episodes and promises of God along the way. If you remember uh, back to high school or if you're in high school, it might be fresh. Back to your literature class, there is a plot all the way through Scripture as conflict and rising action and all of the things that you would expect in any good story. It starts with the breakdown of creation in the fall after all of the world was made good, and it moves through the promises that God makes to Noah and to Abraham and to Moses and to David, all the way up to the point of Jesus where the hero shows up who will be the fulfillment of all of the promises. But until Jesus comes, there is this waiting. And even now, until Jesus comes again, there is this waiting. And over the last few weeks, we've been talking about what it means to wait for the coming of Christ. Two weeks ago, we talked about how we wait in grace, that we expect God to continue to be at work in us, transforming us, preparing us to live with God for all of eternity. And last week, we talked about how God calls us to continue to work while we wait. That we don't just get to sit back and relax knowing that Christ has saved us, but that by the Holy Spirit, God is making the church the body of Christ in the world, and we are called to be about Jesus' business. And today, we're going to talk about a little bit different waiting. The waiting for a king. The waiting for a savior, but specifically for a king. You may not know it, but this is what you are waiting for. You are waiting for Jesus to return with trumpets and glory to reign forever. This is what we pray for in the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, 
thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And yet when we hear that we are waiting for a king, the king that we get is not necessarily what we would expect if we didn't already know the story of Jesus. And it's certainly not what the people who read the prophet Jeremiah would have expected so many years ago. So the background of Jeremiah, I told you, is that the people of Israel, specifically the people of Judah, have been taken out of Judah. They've been stripped from their land, and they've been taken into exile. And as that happens, they wonder what has happened to the promises of God. God has made promises to the patriarchs and to the prophets and to the people of Israel for generations. And so far, he has kept them, but not in completion. When God called Abraham, he said, If you have faith in me, if you come where I lead you, I will give you a family that will become a nation, and I will give you a land, and through you all the nations will be blessed. And within a couple of generations, Abraham was not in the land that had been promised. In fact, all of his people were in Egypt, and pretty quickly they were enslaved for 400 years. And they were waiting, wondering about the promises of God. And finally, God raised up Moses. He sent the ten plagues. Pharaoh let Moses lead the people out of Egypt. And again, they were waiting as they wandered for 40 years in the wilderness, waiting for God to deliver them into the promised land. And then Moses died and Joshua led them into the promised land and they conquered all of the people there and they set up camps and divided the land among the 12 tribes. And for a while, the judges ruled. But then Israel got anxious because all the other countries around had a king, and they wanted a king too. So they asked for a king. And God was somewhat disappointed because until that point, God had been their king. But God gave them a king as they asked for and gave them Saul. And that didn't work out very well, so God raised up a new king from a different line, from the line of Judah, and that king was David. And David had his own flaws and everything else, but God promised David that one of his heirs would rule over Israel forever. And David had several sons. One of them, Solomon, ended up taking over the throne. And things weren't great under Solomon, but they were the best they would be ever again. After Solomon, the kingdoms divided into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom... And only Judah and Benjamin remained shortly thereafter because the northern kingdom got, got conquered. And then a while later, the southern kingdom got conquered as well and taken into exile. And so as Jeremiah writes, he's speaking to people who are in exile who have all of these promises. Promises that they'll have a land and a family and a nation. Promises that David would rule forever. And Jeremiah tells them that those promises are not finished. That God is going to raise up a new king, is going to call all of the sheep back from everywhere that they've been scattered and rule over them in justice and righteousness. The next couple of verses that we didn't read said that the God who does that will no longer be known as the God who led the people out of Egypt, but as the God who magically brought everyone together. Not magically, but supernaturally. That is going to be the story. That through this branch of David, God is going to bring everyone together under his righteous king 
who will, who will rule in justice and righteousness. That's what the people are waiting for. And the story has continued on through time. They return from exile, but things are never quite the same. They, they rebuild the temple, but it's not the same. They never reclaim all of their autonomy. And over and over again, the people who have conquered Israel get conquered until finally you find yourself in Jesus' time with the Romans ruling over Israel and giving the Jews just enough permission to practice their faith that they don't rebel. So we have that story on the one hand, and we have this full-blown, unfettered praise of Jesus by Paul in Colossians. Paul burst into song gushing about the nature of Jesus, that he is the image of the invisible God, that he's the firstborn of all creation, that through him everything on heaven and earth came into being. That is how powerful Jesus is. Jesus is the one who made everything, He's the one in whom all things hold together, and he is the one who has come to save us. When we hear about Jesus' power, when we hear about his throne in the heavenly places, it's hard for us to bring that together with who we see Jesus as on the cross. There's this full, unfettered praise of Jesus. There's this expectation of a Messiah, and then there's Jesus on the cross. There are three offices from the Old Testament that Jesus is said to hold in the New Testament. Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. And these three things might merge together a little bit for us, but prophet's primary work is to speak the word of the Lord about things in the past, things in the present, or things to come, to speak to the people on behalf of God. They take what God says and they deliver it to the people. Priests are responsible for mediating from the people back to God. Priests make sacrifices to atone for sin. Priests make sacrifices to bring the people of God together in covenant. And then there's the king. And the king is a political ruler. He rules over the people of Israel, and he does the Lord's work with them. That's the way it's supposed to work, at least. And when you hear Jesus described as Christ or Messiah, this is kingly language. Messiah is the Hebrew word, Christ is the Greek word, and both of them mean anointed. And they mean anointed particularly because this was how Israel inaugurated their king. They anointed them with oil and prayed over them as the Lord installed them as king. So as they waited for their Messiah, what they were waiting for was a king. What they wanted was for someone to come and to rule over them in a political reality. Now let's let's go ahead and get the outrage out right now. I'm going to invite you to say it with me, okay? I hate going to church and hearing about politics. I hate going to church and hearing about politics. Amen? Well, I'm not going to talk about Democrats and Republicans or any of that, so don't worry. But we are going to talk about politics today. Because you can't have more than one king. That's what monarch means, one ruler, right? So the claim that Jesus was Messiah, 
The claim that Jesus was the promised heir of David, the new king of Israel, the king of the Jews, which is the charge that's plastered above his head as he's crucified, means that he's the one who's going to reestablish Israel and all the glory that was promised to Abraham and Moses, the glory that was lost by political defeat in the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom as they're carted off to Babylon. This is a political claim to say that Jesus is king. And now they're under the rule of the Romans, the, the empire that still looms the largest in all of world history. That's why all of those languages are called the Romance languages, the Romans languages. Their influence continues to yield tremendous impact for our world. And in the midst of that, as the Israelites wanted their own king, Jesus comes forward healing people and teaching and showing great power and building a movement where hundreds if not thousands of people are following him and people are starting to expect that maybe he's the Messiah. And as he begins to acknowledge that and as they begin to believe that, others recognize it as the kind of claim that undermines Roman authority. And it threatens the religious leaders who are benefiting from the protection of Roman control. And so what do they do to prove that he's not a king? How can they show that Jesus is not the Messiah that they're waiting for? They think they can defeat him. So they arrest him, and they mock him, and they beat him, and they publicly humiliate him, and they show to all the world that he is weak. And all the crowds recognize it as well. He saved others. If he's the Messiah, surely he can save himself. And if not, he's not fit to be called king. He's not fit to be called anything but an imposter. He can't save himself. And if he can't save himself, he surely can't save anyone else. And so there they stand with him on the cross, mocking him as a fraud. If he were really that powerful, he would come off of the cross. That's what any of us would do. Why wouldn't Jesus do the same if he could? Anyone who could avoid being crucified would do that. And even one of the thieves recognizes this. He either is mocking Jesus along with everyone else because at least he's the one getting all of the abuse and not not the thief himself, or maybe he thinks... He's got a win-win proposition. Either he can make fun of Jesus, or if he prompts Jesus in just the right way, maybe Jesus is going to get down off the cross, get him off the cross too, and then the rebellion can begin, and they can go and conquer the world. But this is King Jesus. Lifted up, exalted by being nailed to rough wood, crowned not with jewels but with thorns. Jesus hasn't come to create the kind of kingdom that everyone expected. He hasn't come to claim power by shedding the blood of others. His rebellion, his coup, will be not a violent revolt of him against others. He is going to make peace by his own blood, the blood of the cross. His crown is a crown of thorns, and his throne is the cross itself, a symbol of shame and and grief 
and guilt and torment, an instrument of torture, a tool for death. This is his throne. And it's so gruesome that we want to look away. Even Luke doesn't spend much time on the details. In fact, for a long time, I was confused as a kid uh, when it said that they crucified him. I thought he meant he died right away, and then I didn't know how he was talking afterwards. Or maybe there was something else happening. But Luke says they crucified him, which means that he was nailed to the cross and then lifted up for everyone to see so he could hang there until he died. It turns out that Jesus is not the king that anyone expected. He hasn't arrived to build an army to overthrow Roman rule. He will not restore Israel to its status as a nation state, equal or greater to all of the other nations. His mission is bigger than that, not less than that. He is going to bring people who've been scattered to the four corners of the earth, streaming into his kingdom along with all of the heavenly hosts. He's going to receive a crown and a, th- and a throne and a dominion in the heavenly places, and he's going to rule over all of the world for all of eternity. But he doesn't get there with swords or bows and arrows or shields. In fact, his enthronement on the cross shows us how puny those tools of war are. Their power cannot stop the power of God. They cannot stop a king who destroys his enemy not with violence, but with love. The psalm that we read this morning tells us this. God is in the city, it shall not be moved. The nations are in uproar, the kingdoms totter. His voice utters, and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. Be still and know that I am God. As we look at Christ crucified, Christ enthroned on the cross, that is the invitation. To be still and know that he is God. And this posture is what we see in the second thief. This thief looks at Jesus who's being mocked and tortured and killed. And he notices that rather than vile what Jesus has to offer to the people who are pouring out their rage on him is forgiveness. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. They do not know that they are killing the king that you've promised to them. And when the thief sees that, he says, I want to be in that guy's kingdom. Everybody else looks at Jesus and says, surely he cannot be the king of the Jews. And this thief looks at Jesus and says, that's the kind of kingdom I want to be in. The kind of kingdom that comes with peace by his own blood. The kind of kingdom that comes with justice and righteousness. And so he asks humbly, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What a tremendous statement of faith to look at someone who looks defeated to everyone else and says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Right now, I recognize you as king right here on the cross. And Jesus says he will remember him. That very day, they'll be together in paradise. Through the cross, through Jesus' cross and through the cross 
of the thief as he dies. They'll go there, they'll go there together. And Jesus, the Messiah, the long-awaited king of the Jews, will reign. I wonder today if you know Jesus as king. Jesus didn't come just to restore Israel. He didn't come just to conquer Rome. He didn't come just to lead a rebellion against all the powers and principalities in the world, though he did do those things in an entirely unexpected way. Jesus came to be your king, to rule over you in justice and, justice and righteousness and mercy and peace. Jesus came to claim his rightful throne and to fulfill all of the promises that God has made to God's people. And you don't have to be perfect to receive him as your king. You don't even have to be loyal up till right now. Jesus has already taken care of it. He just wants you to recognize him for who he is and respond accordingly. So I ask you, is Jesus your king? And if so, there's not room for anyone or anything else. Just like it did for the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Romans, this is where it gets a little bit political. If Jesus is your monarch, there's not room for anyone else to save you. Jesus deserves your allegiance. He deserves your honor and glory and praise. He deserves your service. As we think about this, I'm going to read for you the words of one of my favorite hymns. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet? Or thorns composed so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine? That were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, the one through whom the whole world was made. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the one who was before all things, and in him all things hold together. You better believe that he had the power to come down off the cross if that was his will. But that wasn't the kind of kingdom he was making. Through him, the one in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, that one was pleased to reconcile to himself all things on earth or in heaven through the blood of the cross. Jesus Christ is king. And he has come to make peace with you and with the whole world. He doesn't conquer by spilling the blood of others, but by pouring out his own blood, by offering his life so that we can be reconciled to God and one another, making peace through the blood of the cross. And if Jesus is king, he demands all of my allegiance. He demands my life, my love, my all, and I shall live in submission to his will. If Jesus is my Lord, I will do whatever I can to follow his commands at any cost. And I will trust him to rule over me and my life in grace and mercy and justice and righteousness. He doesn't save the thief and he doesn't save any of us by bringing us down from the cross. But through his cross, carrying us through 
to his eternal kingdom. Will you follow Jesus to the cross and into his kingdom? Because whether you know it or not, he is the king that you've been waiting for. Will you pray with me? O King Jesus, you who rule in justice and righteousness, we long for the world to know you as king. And we confess to you the ways that we have lived our lives as if our allegiance belongs to someone else. We confess that we have become distracted by idols, that we have been neglectful of your calling. So we pray, Lord, that the love that was in you as you poured yourself out for us would be in us so that we can pour ourselves out for others. We pray that we could praise you and exalt you as king faithfully with our lips and with our lives. We pray, Lord, that we would cast our crowns before you because you are worthy of all honor and praise. We pray this in your precious, holy and powerfully surprising name. Amen. <clears throat> I threw my bulletin in the middle of the sermon. Did y'all notice that? <clears throat> Let's stand and sing together hymn number 159, Lift High the Cross. If you want to respond in any way today by following Jesus for the first time, by recommitting your life to serving Jesus as King, simply by, by praying to the Lord, you're welcome to come forward. There's not much room to pray, but you can come forward all the same.